Welcome, everyone, to the very first episode of The Dance Police Podcast, serious talk with a satirical title. Each podcast will feature a different topic or issue that concerns dancers today, inviting dancers and audiences to have candid conversations that I hope will create a well-informed and safer community for everyone. First of all, who am I? My name is Samantha Crilly, and I'm a dancer in Portland, Oregon. I grew up in Spokane, Washington, where I started dancing when I was six. I have a Bachelor's of Arts in Dance from the University of Washington. Since then, I have taught in public schools and dance studios. I have a background in the Color Guard, Marching Band, and Drum Corps communities, having marched for two drum corps and a Winter Guard. I can be seen in the wild taking ballet class in the mornings. I consider myself mostly a contemporary dancer, and it's my goal to be a dance chameleon of sorts. Right now, I'm happily freelancing. I'm going to get into my background a little bit more with future episodes. I'm planning on discussing many more topics that relate to me personally. Dance is my great passion in life, and it has taken on many forms. At this point, my passion for dance is assuming the form of a Dance Talk podcast. Thinking about how to reach dancers that have busy schedules, I was inspired to choose this format so that this information can be more accessible on the go. So, you may be wondering, why the title? Police in general aren't exactly my favorite thing, but I heard the dance police in passing and it fascinated me. It sparked the thoughts that originated this podcast. The phrase for me begs the question, who is accountable for the legitimacy of the dance industry? The answer is obvious for me. We all are, for ourselves and each other. Despite the title's imperfection, it's my goal that it's at least memorable enough to be shareable with your dancer or dance enthusiast friends. I've rushed to get this first podcast out there because it's about an issue that affects me personally and professionally. My voice is something that I'm discovering more and more of every day. When I reached a certain point in this journey, I asked myself, what do I have the responsibility to advocate for? I feel strongly that because of the things that I experienced in this group that I'll be discussing, I must share my experiences for dancers that don't have the opportunity to hear feedback through the grapevine. There are many reasons why a dancer would not feel comfortable speaking about a past company. The dance world is small. Dancers have valid reasons to avoid burning bridges, although at a certain point that risk must be hedged against standing up for what you feel is right. The moral imperative to tell my story outweighs the risks. While I don't offer a ton of solutions with my story, I will consider this a success if one dancer is able to move forward in their career more confidently with information. Some of the things that dancers experience can be outside of the realm of believability. Rehearsal techniques and creative exercises can get interesting at times, which is why I think it's so important to talk openly about what goes on within dance companies. I would often go to my sister or husband after rehearsal and ask, is this normal? Of course they're going to give me an answer from a non-dancer lens, and having to ask the question at all can be an answer in and of itself. Despite the many experiences I have had as a dancer that the normal population would consider strange, there are still alarm bells in there somewhere. When I was a part of this group for five months, I remember them going off on a weekly basis. My hope is that by sharing my story, someday all dancers can feel safe to voice their experiences, especially those experiences that set off alarm bells and startles our gut. I was a part of this group called Eleven Dance Co. two years ago, and they had auditions this past Sunday from the point of this podcast recording. I hope that anyone considering being a part of this group or supporting it is open to hearing what I have to say.
In an interview written by Jamuna Chirini for Organ Arts Watch, Bibi, the artistic director of Eleven, had this to say about reimagining the dance company model and why. I want to read this quote in its entirety before I begin. Delano, quote, Our intention is to use the show as a vehicle for what happens in the studio. The show is never the end goal. It is only a way to get a bunch of people in a room that share a similar passion to explore what love and community look like as a verb. The work we do in rehearsals goes beyond moving bodies. The connections that are made during a season, even if they don't last forever, are real and pure. In doing so, the stories we present on stage can come from a truly vulnerable place because ego and fear are laid aside. The love that is fostered is palpable. Aside from that, I also encourage the dancers to have autonomy over their process. I expect that they come into the project with a true passion for dance, and with that comes work ethic. With the community building work, I encourage them to pull for the other people in the room. Instead of showing up for me, they show up out of respect for the other company members. They work hard because they believe in each other's potential for greatness, not because I demand it. Without this foundation, the project would crumble. When dancers are able to take ownership and feel free, that is when true magic happens. I ask them to do some pretty scary stuff emotionally, but they trust myself and the other dancers enough to take that risk. Why? I'm tired of dancers accepting abuse for stage time. I'm tired of people putting plastic feelings on stage and saying it's authentic without doing any actual work to dig deep. I'm tired of people saying they want to work, but really just wanting someone to validate where they are at at that moment. I'm tired of the word love being tossed around like a pokeball. I'm tired of seeing dance suffer this slow, excruciating death, end quote. Such optimism. I encourage you to check out this entire interview. It's full of oddities like, quote, Eleven is really just a big group of aliens that found their mothership, end quote. The part of this statement that I want to focus on is the scary stuff emotionally. What is really going on in rehearsal that supposedly breaks down emotional barriers and allows us to freely create without inhibitions or vulnerabilities? It sounds like that magic formula, but seeing this talk in action was a lot of smoke and mirrors. I gather from this interview that the director does not create a safe space emotionally for everyone. Seeing that pretty scary stuff for myself was alarming. Part 1. Feels It's February 2016. I was naive and sent in an audition tape knowing next to nothing about Eleven beyond their own marketing. The marketing was, and is, no doubt, appealing. It gives off a strong, we're-not-like-other-people vibe. I like their style. It was not just one thing, and I'm a dancer that likes to do it all. It seemed like a good fit for me. Maybe I had finally found my people. Up front, the benefits seemed to outweigh the costs, and it sounded like a worthy mission, one that I could get behind and contribute to. I also thought that it would be a great way to get more dancing hours in without the cost of taking class. The first day of rehearsal included a lot of normal first day things, exchanging phone numbers, icebreakers, improvisational exercises, and the like. Everyone seems very excited to be there. There was a potluck the first day, and almost everyone brought fruit. One of the best fruit salads I ever made. I had the feeling that we were all excited to embark on a new and grand dance-making adventure. I know I'm not alone in saying that dance training encourages you to dive into the creative process. Where things got instantly weird for me was when Bibi was, in my view, pushing the family aspect 
pretty hard. After some guided improv exercise on the first day, we were all laid on the floor holding hands with the people next to us. Bibi kept reiterating, we're a family. We're a family. Seemed like forced camaraderie. I gave her the benefit of the doubt because, hey, maybe it's some sort of mental exercise or something. I considered for a moment not continuing. I think I'm like most dancers in that personal satisfaction weighs heavy as a factor with projects. I was mostly enjoying myself so far, so I stuck around. Further rehearsals included a lot of what you might consider to be normal creative exercises. They often made a mess in the studio, building an obstacle course out of yarn and foam rollers, for instance. It was often similar to my dance composition courses at UW, which had appeal, and in the beginning, the positives still outweighed the negatives. There were times when the group dynamics were beneficial, but there were times when the activities were not positive, not beneficial, or even safe for everyone involved. An experience that stuck with me was what I called the circle of secrets. It was another one of these vulnerability exercises that I believe are not a part of any known psychology or therapy practices, but could be perceived as cult-esque malice. Bibi asked the group a range of questions, from controversial questions to deeply personal life matters. Questions like, if you come from a single-parent household, or if you have struggled with addiction. For each question that applied, dancers took steps forward into the circle or backward that detail I honestly don't remember. Some might have thought it was okay because BB was participating. The exercise was emotionally irresponsible to me. I was observing that this family unit that was born created a culture that looked down upon those that weren't committed. My dissent inevitably divided me from the unit that was fully invested in the vision. Honor your commitments was a mantra that was taught to me at a very early age. I was taught that no matter what, quitting something reflects poorly on you. Because of my experiences sticking around with Eleven, I learned that personal ethics are more important to me than unwavering commitment. So, if the goal was to create emotional vulnerability, it failed on me. Divulging secrets in a group setting is not the way to foster community and openness, for me at least. I'm sure I'm not the only one that experienced a feeling that wounds were ripped open without aftercare. The worst day of them all, for me, was when Bibi asked us about our worst fear, which we got up in front of everyone to declare. There was real pain coming from many dancers that was very difficult for me to witness. I knew that these raw emotions were not being thoughtfully cared for. I saw this as a very immoral practice. Then there were crying days. Walking into rehearsal and discovering that a crying day was on the agenda, I was, by no fault of my own, physically and emotionally unwilling to participate. If the name doesn't explain enough, crying days were reserved for when BB felt it necessary to spend the rehearsal crying. Personally, that's not the way I rehearse or train. From my experience, rehearsals came to a screeching halt for BB's crying days. It seemed like these emotionally vulnerable rehearsals were an indication that if I had a real issue, my concerns would be addressed. After I got kicked in the head while BB was choreographing her piece, I was sure that I would be able to have a conversation with BB about what can be done so that the other dancers and I can feel safer in rehearsal. We scheduled time to meet. Meeting in rehearsal the next day, I will be the first to say that it did not go well. The same dismissive language was used that I've heard before. Accidents happen. It's easy to take personal responsibility with spontaneous movement like improvisation, but if there was exact spacing and movement given, is it really a complete accident? I've never seen a choreographer react with such little accountability. I don't know about you, but I greatly dislike head injuries. I felt that I was already a step behind with this conversation because I had revealed to the group that injury is my greatest fear. 
It was the first time and last time that I can say that I will allow myself to get that upset at someone. I learned a lot about myself that day. I had a voice. The solution given to me was that since I don't like getting kicked in the head, I don't have to be in her piece. Interesting compromise. I could not believe that a leader of a dance group could be so defensive. I was furious. I was told I had to meet with Bibi and Hui separately in order to come back to rehearsals. After the individual meetings with Hui and Bibi on my own time, I was allowed to return to finish the show, now excluded from Bibi's piece, having no desire to be kicked in the head. I missed out on two other pieces. Both choreographed during the rehearsals, I was gone. In Hui's meeting with me, he said that I was motivated by malice and that I needed to check my privilege. Let's be clear. Questioning the existence of safety protocols is not being malicious nor privileged, nor is getting upset about it. My sadness around the situation was visible. I cried during the meeting. My safety was everything to me, and it became clear to me that I'd still not found people who could respect that. Hui seized the opportunity to proselytize that perhaps my sadness meant that there was something lacking in my spirituality. He invited me to discuss scripture with him. I knew that there was no progress to be made from that point. I didn't need to talk about Jesus. I needed my concerns to be heard. Eleven is billed as an opportunity to be in a bubble of love, selfless love, and trust for one another, driven by a passion for moving our bodies around. But words and actions are two separate entities. Unfortunately, that was not the end of my bizarre moments or freak accident injuries. The backstage hands are paid to care, as I was told, and evidently $50 is not enough. The neglect by one hand resulted in a black eye on closing night of the July 2016 show. Let me explain. In my performing career, I have learned that the last day of shows tends to be a time when strange and unexpected things happen because A, stuff is worn out and breaks, or B, people forget to do their jobs. Unless the leadership of a company is aware of this phenomenon and takes action steps to prevent it, premature celebration can result in a catastrophe for the show or an individual. In the Coho Theater where Eleven performed, stage right is also the entrance and exit. A backstage hand was supposed to keep the stage right wing clear of lingering people. Theaters are dangerous places, especially during a full blackout. I had to trust that that wing was clear. I was leading the way for the people behind me that had a quick change. I threw open the curtain for a final time, and I smacked my nose into a man's glasses. It was totally quiet, and it definitely hurt. Performance conditioning had my body and mind completely focused on moving forward to the next task. The stagehand definitely knows who they are because I had a few words with them directly. Bibi told me she was sorry I was hurt and that frozen spoons help a lot. Yep. I told Hui as well that perhaps there might be a way to improve closing night protocol, and I never received a reply. Awesome. Okay. Injuries are a reality of being a dancer, but injuries should not be the result of carelessness or neglect. Two months before the show, I had an IT band injury, which was finally the extent of the injuries that I sustained while being a part of Eleven. At the time, I was just happy to be performing after being able to quickly bounce back from what is now sciatica. Two injuries of mine could have been prevented if there were active steps taken to put dancer's safety above everything else. Currently, I'm in physical therapy twice a week to mitigate the pain in the back of my knee, and as I'm told, it's possible that the pain may never go away. I very much want to help other people avoid similar injuries if it's even remotely possible that something about their training resulted in my IT band injury. Theaters, rehearsals, all of these spaces 
need to be safe for everyone, even those like me that are deeply concerned about bodily injury and our ability to continue dancing. I don't believe that it's fair to shame dancers who can't afford to take injuries in stride. Personally, I want to be able to dance tomorrow and forever. Around the same time as my IT band injury, there was an incident that was more troublesome to me than my physical therapy bill. One night in April 2016, there was a person that smashed one of the studio windows. In the days after the window breaking, the floor was not swept properly, so tiny bits of glass covered the studio floor. Dancers were finding the glass on the floor themselves during rehearsal, and by find, I mean get stabbed by. The directors, to me, didn't seem to care beyond the occasional oopsies remark, so I took it upon myself to create a large first aid kit for the group, passive-aggressively called Eleven's Boo Boo Box. In it, I had hydrogen peroxide, band-aids, neosporin, alcohol wipes, and two pair of tweezers, so the dancers can more easily pick the glass out of their feet. This group was functioning on a level of carelessness I never thought possible. The consequences were bodily injury. The normalcy during this horrifying scenario was the most terrifying part of the Eleven experience for me. My worst fear was truly being tested. I wore extra thick socks and hoped for the best, waiting for someone to speak up, and no one did. I regret not speaking up in that moment and only providing first aid supplies. I felt like an enabler in hindsight. My last day working with Eleven was a film shoot. Filming the show had not been completed by the time the show wrapped, so we were asked to meet at Hoyt Arboretum. I thought, okay, one more thing, and then I'm gone forever. The film shoot was, of course, unpaid. I thought the goal was to film the final piece that was missing from the show video. Instead, a lot of the sunlight was used taking photos while posed in trees. Knowing that safety is not exactly their thing, I picked the lowest branch and went along with it for the day. What I could have never expected was when we finally got to filming the piece, an observation was vocalized by BB that was a whole new way of making me feel uncomfortable. I was placed in a spot next to another dancer, and BB stated that she liked our contrasting skin tones. I don't know exactly what she meant by that, but I know that I would never want to work with someone knowing that they make decisions based on skin tone. If it wasn't already my last day, it absolutely would have been at that point. Part two, monies. Okay, let's talk about money. Now, I promised myself before auditioning for Eleven that I would never do a pay-to-play dance company again. What's pay-to-play in the way I'm referring? Pay-to-play dance companies rely on their members' resources and connections as a means of revenue. The company could be upfront and charge a monthly fee for the operational costs like space, theater, rental, and costumes. Sometimes the leaders of a company seek operating funds from outside sources while also holding fundraisers that the dancers are a part of. Then, there are companies that rely almost entirely on the members to fundraise on behalf of the company. There can even be quotas. The third scenario adds an extra layer of complexity to the idea that a company is charging its members to perform. Nonetheless, if the members are the ones bringing in most of the money, then that for me constitutes pay-to-play. My past experiences selling chocolate bars for school were recalled when Hui started what I consider to be the training company shakedown. Hui led the meeting, and I have to say he is very good at grandstanding and selling their vision. The message of the meeting was clear to me. The dancers would need to bring a specific amount of money in, in order for the show to become a reality. The meeting turned into talking about the amount each dancer was asked for. 
easily broken down into X number of people giving $5 or half of that number giving $10, blah, blah, I know that speech. The concept of everyone contributing to support the mission helped to pacify my concern at the time that we all needed to pull our weight. It was another moment that I regret not speaking up. My gut was telling me that I was not the only one caught by surprise. I had rationalized that I was being a good sport, helping a cause that I was a part of and believed in at the time. The reality is that familial connections and Facebook friends are not an everlasting source of fundraising potential. I regret asking people to give money to a group that operates on the utilization of dancers' precious and finite resources. My parents gave hundreds of dollars that I now regret asking them to give, and I bought a class card that I regret buying. The fundraising campaign fell drastically short of expectations, bringing in $3,202, 21% of the $15,000 goal. Apparently, this fell short of the funds needed to rent the theater and actually put the show on. In my experience inquiring about funding with Eleven, I was told that they don't like to talk about money with people because it's stressful, and if everyone was in it for the money, it wouldn't exist. Dance companies of every size struggle for revenue, but the end shouldn't justify the means. I don't know the extent of all of Eleven's fundraising, but the way I observed it in 2016, the dancers and their Facebook friends were primarily responsible. I asked about other sources of revenue and was told by Hui that there really isn't any, so what's the point? I knew that there were company members that worked or went to school full-time and did not have the time to fundraise on the company's behalf. I also know through my background teaching marching band that a defeatist attitude about fundraising is a key to failure. Wanting to prove that there is money if you know where to look for it, I extended a connection that I had to BB and Hui. It was a natural beverage company. The company offered Eleven $1,000 to produce social media content. Widespread visibility and getting paid to create the content sounded like a win-win to me. As was demonstrated by the fulfillment of fundraising perks, they did not take the initiative to follow up in a timely manner. The CEO at the time told me that in his view, Eleven acted like they were too good for the project. The runaround behavior reflected poorly on me, and I regret willingly offering a resource. That experience was also information for me about Eleven's level of motivation and work ethic for seeking operational funds. The lack of clarity with their process appeared to have a profoundly negative effect on the success of the group as a whole. That season, I was deemed an apprentice, for example, and the expectations surrounding the role of apprentice were unclear to me, so I asked. I was compared to people they need to train from scratch in the production pool. Apprentices were not guaranteed stage time and were ineligible for the profit share, which was red flag to me. A profit share policy within a nonprofit doesn't make sense to me. Someone please help me out with this one. I was informed that apprentices were evaluated based on their skill in relation to the company, whether they fit within the company and its desired goals, and work ethic. Adding other expectations, like fundraising, it's quite a high bar for unpaid labor. Seeing this process as a potential byproduct of the dance industry climate, I was deeply concerned with how the leaders of the group were comfortable justifying offering nothing but training and experience to most of the highly skilled people they managed to gather. Part 3. Bad Company Culture Creating this podcast, my research often produced more questions than answers. I was curious to understand more about how a nonprofit dance company operates. Perhaps it's not as impossible as Eleven makes it seem. 
These are my thoughts and inferences based on what I have researched. I would love to hear someone's perspective who knows more about nonprofits than what I could gather on Google. There are many incentives and benefits that come with being a nonprofit organization. You can accept tax-deductible donations, you can accept grant money, and you're tax-exempt. Getting 501c3 status is a long and difficult process. Lucky for Eleven and thousands of arts organizations around the country, there's a platform based out of New York City called Fractured Atlas. Fractured Atlas is its own nonprofit who temporarily extends their nonprofit benefits to arts organizations that pay them a membership fee. There is a fiscal sponsorship program that the member applies for, which allows the artist or group to accept grants and hold tax-deductible fundraisers. My confusion is with one Fractured Atlas policy that says that artists or organizations with a membership do not have to have their own board of directors. From what I understand, it is state and federal law for a nonprofit to have certain operational protocol like a board of directors. It's an ethics issue. There should be transparent oversight with expenditures. What is confusing to me is how it seems possible to pay a membership fee to avoid state and federal law. Again, someone please help me out with this. Training and exposure is all too often not what it's cracked up to be. What I've found in my experience and with speaking to other dancers is that the cost often exceeds the benefits of the training and exposure, and the name of the company doesn't hold as much value to the community when word gets out that the dancers are unpaid. People say, do your research, and in a lot of cases, that doesn't exist without showing up and finding out. There is a fascinating article on dancemagazine.com called You Responded, The Issues You Want Dance Companies to Address and How Change Might Happen. It was written by Editor-in-Chief Jennifer Stahl. It's comprised of reader-submitted statements that were sent in via email or social media. I was hearing my Levin story in these statements. This is another article that I recommend reading in its entirety. Jess Spinner, creator of The Whole Dancer, wrote in to say, quote, Dancers shouldn't be used for free labor at any level. If someone is an unpaid trainee, they need to at least be paid for performances. The hordes of young dancers waiting to take spots instills fear, and that fear is perpetuated by artistic staff who flat out say, I'll find someone to take your place and I won't even pay them, end quote. An anonymous submission from a concerned parent had me wondering if my mom was reading DanceMagazine.com. Quote, My daughter has fallen into the trap of this new craze of trainee programs and second company shenanigans. While the companies are benefiting since they're being able to stage larger productions that would require a copious corps de ballet, at the end of their season, they just bring a new batch of young dancers and let go the ones they have freely used. That is the word, used, for a whole season. It is enraging to watch these dancers scrambling around, moving from one city to another, jumping from one trainee second company to another, having to find a second job to support themselves just to keep the dream alive, end quote. In a comment that I believe excuses the issue, artistic and executive director of Ballet Victoria Paul Destrooper said, quote, State support would provide stability and mitigate risks for dancers. If you fix the economic pressure, many issues that fall under negative company culture would organically improve, end quote. Side note. Googling Mr. Des Trooper brought up a whole bunch of upsetting material and quotes that I don't want to get into the details of here. Only Google Mr. Des Trooper if you are fully prepared to read some rage-inducing stuff. 
I don't know for sure exactly what Mr. Des Trooper means by negative company culture, but based on my opinion of his responses in previous interviews, it's just as bad as it sounds. One thing is for sure, that blaming the economy is not going to solve this problem. Money being tight is all too often used as an excuse to keep dance alive at any cost. I've heard some rationalize not paying dancers simply because they're young. It's an observable reality that despite economic pressure, certain dance companies don't have to resort to instability and bad company culture in order to produce art. I can think of many dance companies that set a positive example in Portland alone. There's an ongoing debate surrounding the ethics of dancers performing for free. Industry debate aside, taking the joy factor into consideration, there's nothing inherently wrong with spending money to dance, the same as there being nothing wrong with making money dancing. But for the benefit of both career and hobbyist dancers, companies should be open and upfront about how they operate so that dancers don't commit their time working for pay that may or may not be on the horizon. All in all, I believe as an industry, we should strive to lift up those artists and companies that are serving their dancers and community well, while also being open to discussing the companies that are perhaps taking advantage of the seemingly endless supply of enthusiastic dancers. Putting the story together has been an incredibly healing process for me. Collecting the scattered thoughts and stories helped to calm the resentment and fear that I initially had by converting it into action. I have rewritten my story about eight times. I honestly have many fears and pain surrounding this experience, even while releasing this podcast. But I would experience more heartbreak if I were to say nothing and another person unknowingly walks into the same trap. There is no good that can be done artistically, creatively, emotionally, spiritually, or otherwise if it means that dancers are being subjected to cult-like tactics. I was never warned to watch out for dance cults in my training growing up, but nevertheless, here we are. (laughs) Maybe we can all care for each other more watch out for each other in and out of the studio, and we don't have to divulge personal secrets in order to do that. Maybe there is a way of creating a radical and revolutionary dance movement that excites audiences about dance without giving off the appearance of a cult. I was just lucky I never stepped on a piece of glass. The next episode of The Dance Police podcast is going to inevitably be a follow-up to this episode. I would love to hear your feedback. How can we stand up for each other? hold ourselves and each other accountable, and keep each other safe so that we all can dance another day. If the follow-up doesn't take the whole time, I would like to get into our next topic, something that I also have firsthand experience in, ivory towers, aka higher institutions of learning. I will be talking to a few special guests about the nature of dance in academia today and what can be done to preserve this degree through the unexpected economic and political climate. I'd like to thank the staff that I spoke to at Dance Magazine and Oregon Arts Watch that gave me permission to use their articles. The dancers in the community that spared their time to talk to me about this project, you know who you are. Thank you. The dancer that inspired the title, I promise it's not personal. And my family and friends that put up with me ruminating about this for the past two years. I hope that you tune in next time to the Dance Police podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope that you take a moment to dance.